Hey, we're in 2 Kings 2. 2 Kings 2. Let me explain where we're at and what we're doing. We're going through this. It's called Prophets and Kings. You guys know this now probably like secondhand. I still like to review just to make sure everyone's on the same page. The story of Israel is an interesting story. Obviously, after they uh, were led from the great exodus with Moses, Moses passed down to Joshua. Then you see Judges. Then you see the Samuels. Uh, in the Samuels, we see the idea there's a need and want for a king. You have King Saul. Then you have King David. Then you have Solomon. And then from there, the kingdom of Israel breaks into two kingdoms. And if you remember, if you've been following with us, in 1 Kings 12, this is when that happens. This might get confusing. Maybe you look at the Old Testament and you're like, there's just too much going on. I don't know who's speaking to who, what prophet went where. The idea is pretty simple, but it feels like it's not. In 1 Kings chapter 12, the kingdom splits into two. The northern kingdom is called Israel. The southern kingdom is called Judah, right? The northern kingdom never had a good king. Never, never, ever. We're going to see that eventually the northern kingdom will be taken captive by the Assyrians after several generations of kings of just failing, failing, failing. The southern kingdom, they have about five pretty good kings, some kings that are kind of mixed, but then eventually we know they fall into rebellion and sin, and they're taken by Babylon. So the northern tribe goes off into Assyria as slaves. The southern Judah primarily goes off to Babylon. And then you see even throughout the Old Testament, different prophets throughout this time speaking to the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom or maybe their Babylonian captivity. And I want you to kind of get a big picture of just how the Old Testament works because this is the idea. Um, The story of the gospel does not begin with Jesus in the book of Matthew. It, It does begin in Genesis, like right away we're told there would be one who would basically crush the serpent's head. There would be a savior who'd come from this virgin, a savior who'd come from the woman. And we see the story of the gospel playing out in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So we're going through these books because these stories are powerful. There is so much here. Um, Maybe these stories, you've kind of read them in obscurity and you're like, I don't know, Elijah, Elisha, what is going on? My hope is to bring clarity to that and also see how these stories back then still have modern meaning and application for us today, that all of scripture is divine, inspired by God. It has authority and weight for our lives. We can learn from it. Uh, even if you feel like, what is going on here? Listen, we come to one of the most insane passages of scripture today. So welcome. Uh, I'm so glad you're here. We're going to talk about some bears messing with some kids. It's great. Um, if you don't know this story, don't worry. You're going to read it in just a second and be like, what's your size point? We're going to figure that out today together, okay? Um, no, I'm kidding. But this is going to be great. Here's the idea. Uh, my hope is that as we walk through these stories, um, know this, as difficult or as challenging certain passages might be, there's in, in, intense meaning behind it that we must explore, that we can't just like overlook. We're going to read some stories that just feel like, what is, what's the purpose? What's God doing? Why does he do this? Maybe, you, maybe you've read some stories in the Old Testament. And you're like, this frustrates me. I don't like this. And in some ways, like, welcome. Like, welcome. Bring that. Like, we, we want you to bring that. I do believe God can handle even those questions, the frustrations, the why would God ever do this type of thing. So I want to kind of explore that with you guys. Um, the title today is pretty simple. It's Barrenness, Blessing, Baldy, and Bears. And Battlestar Galactica. For my, never mind. Um, this is the idea. We're going to walk through the end of 2 Kings 2. We're going to see a really unique couple of stories. And again, in case you are like, what's going on? Elijah, the prophet, who really called out King Ahab, the king of the north, the king of Israel, Ahab being the most wicked king, Elijah spent a lot of his ministry just calling out Ahab and Jezebel to repentance, essentially. Elijah's taken to heaven. We just looked at this last week, 2 Kings 2. It's fascinating. Elijah's taken to heaven, and then Elisha, his servant, his apprentice, is filled with a double portion of his spirit. This was such a picture of the book of Matthew, all the Gospels, the book of Acts. Jesus ascends into heaven, and he says, greater works you will do than these. In John 16, John 14, Jesus ascends into heaven and gives us his spirit. And he's like, I'm working now through my, my church. I'm working now through my disciples, through my apprentices. I'm now working through them. Elijah ascends into heaven, and there's a double portion given to Elisha. Fun fact from uh, people who really know these things really well, Elijah seems to do eight clear miracles in the Old Testament. Elisha seems to do 16 very distinct miracles. The idea is that it truly is a double portion. Now, Elisha, filled with this double portion from, like, of the spirit of Elijah. Elijah, the greatest prophet that ever lived. Now, here's Elisha, double portion. We're going to see Elisha kind of reenact and do some things that are similar to what Elijah does. Also, keep in mind, this will be similar to the ministry of Jesus. As weeks move on, you'll see how Elisha's story reflects in so much the gospel story. 
that the dead are raised, the blind see, the lame walk. And you kind of see like this, this really this kind of foreshadow of Jesus's ministry. So we now come to Elisha, filled with a double portion of the spirit. He crosses over the Jordan. That's his first miracle. The river parts again, just like Elijah did. The crosses over the Jordan. The next two things that we're going to see here, he makes like bad or bitter water. He heals it and restores it. And then he brings judgment on some teenage boys who want to throw down and some bears go to work. So let's read it. All right. Welcome to the exchange. We, we don't avoid these passages. We just go right at them. All right. Second Kings chapter two, verse 19, Elisha just beginning his ministry. Second Kings chapter two, verse 19. Let's read it. It says, now the men of the city, speaking of Jericho, go back to verse 15, Jericho, the men of Jericho said to Elisha, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, literally means evil, raw, and the land is unfruitful. Verse 20, he said, Elisha said, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the springs of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on neither death nor miscarriage or barrenness shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elijah spoke. Man, that's so cool, right? Bad water is blessed. You can drink it, brings life. So blessing now bears. All right, verse 23. And he went up from there, from, uh, from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys, we'll talk about that. Some small boys came out to the city and jeered at him, saying, go up, bald head, go up, bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and the two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there, he returned to Samaria. This is every bald guy's favorite passage of the Bible, but this is not okay. It cannot be your verse that you quote when some people call you names. Listen, um, <laughs> As silly as this story sometimes might appear to be, in, in reality, there are many people who struggle with this. They go, this is exactly why I don't believe in your God. Stories like this. So I want to talk about that. Can we do that? I want to, I want to just kind of embrace it. I want to embrace the blessing that happens, and I want to embrace the bears. You've got to embrace it all. All right, so why don't we just pray and just ask the Lord to just speak and move. Can we do that? Why don't we just bow our heads, let's pray. Father, we are incredibly grateful that as David wrote, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. And as we come to scriptures or passages or stories like this, where it just seems like what is going on? God, I ask that you would bring clarity. God, I ask that you would speak. Let us sense <clears throat> the beauty, God, that you take bad waters and you make them beautiful, you make them clean. And you also bring judgment, and you're a God who brings beauty and judgment. And I ask that we'd have not just a partial vision of you, but Lord, help us to know you the way you made yourself known to us through your word. Help us to know you. God, I ask, Lord, that you would just speak, that you'd move, that you'd be blessed and glorified in your name, Jesus. Amen. Uh, when I was... I think 19, gosh, I don't know, maybe 20. In 2008, uh, I was blessed to be able to go to um, every week to Saddleback a Community College and teach a Bible study there. It's a, it's a community college in California. It's a big community college, like I think like 18,000 students. But I was able to go there every week and do a little Bible study, nothing crazy, nothing big. Um, I think it's like on a Wednesday or Thursday morning, there was like 10 students that were Christians. It was hard, you know, they're like, they're just going, man, what is it like to follow Jesus at university? This is new for them. And so um, I worked at a church and I was able to go to this university every week and just preach a little Bible study. It was awesome. And every week we'd have like students there and I would, we'd open up the word, we'd go through it. And it, it was fun. It was a unique experience. We had, you know, this young man who would come every week and he just loved to, he was friends with the group. Uh, but he was, you know, a very self-proclaimed atheist. He loved to kind of interject and it's kind of interesting to have someone like stop and speak. And even though it's like a smaller group, he loved to just mock or make fun or belittle. It's, it's funny to me because we would all bring our Bibles and he would walk in like we'd have our Bibles in our arm. He'd have the God delusion under his arm. You know, a book by Richard Dawkins that came out in like the early 2000s. is a very like kind of pop culture atheist book, The God Delusion. 
And if you're familiar with Richard Dawkins and maybe his writings or his work, he, he really takes an intense view of God. Um, he mocks him. He loves to mock him. He loves to belittle him. And this was basically kind of stemming into our group through this guy. So I would open the Bible. He'd open the God Illusion. And uh, it's fun. We just talk. And it's great. And here's just a little taste of, of what his frustration was um, in that group. And many have had the same frustration. But this is a very well-known quote from the book, from the God Delusion. Let me just read it to you. Richard Dawkins says, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. All right. He loves... He loves to hate on this God that he does not believe in. It's funny, actually, when you watch some of his videos or hear him, I'm like, man, for someone who doesn't exist, you really hate him. He really hates him. And it's one of those things where I do want to also hear, though, I want to hear what he's saying. He, there's, his hope and his point is using these stories like in 2 Kings 2, we just read to be like, this is why I could never believe in a God that exists, specifically the Christian God. Now, maybe you've heard arguments like that. I mean, it's a very common argument. How could a, a good and loving God wipe out the Canaanites? How could a good and loving God send two bears wipe out 42 youth? Like, what is this about? This is one of those things we don't want to shy away from. We want to go, hey, let's understand this. Let's approach this. My hope is even at the end today to kind of give you some thoughts and here's what to do when you approach tough texts like this. Um, but this is important because I really do think this is interesting. If I ever talk to skeptics or unbelievers, or I mean, a lot of them point to, they have certain go-to stories, right? There's certain go-to stories. There's certain issues they have. Second Kings 2, by the way, if you don't know, this is a go-to one. This is like everyone's favorite, like, yo, two she-bears come out of the forest and just maul 42 kids? Like, what is up? Like, I understand. It, it's an intense story. You go, what's going on? Um, whether, I don't know how you feel about this, but I'm just going to use this as an example. Um, the most, number one most listened podcast to today is Joe Rogan Podcast. Maybe you listen to it or know what that is. But it's the number one most listened to podcast. The reason why I'm bringing this up is he uses this story to try to go, this is why I'm just against Christian beliefs and ideas. Very frustrated kind of by this idea. So here's what he says. It's a conversation between Joe Rogan and his guest, Douglas Murray. Uh, so just kind of bear with me. The quote, it's not the best, but I just want you to understand like the heart and tone people have towards Christians. He says, uh, which book is it where the guy called upon the she-bear to kill the children who are mocking his baldness? It's my favorite, especially as a bald guy. This guy was getting mocked by children, swears, by, you know, kids. <laughs> and God called upon a she-bear to come down and tear apart these children who were making fun of his bald head. Elisha and the two bears. Douglas Murray said, uh, if you were going to intervene in human affairs for anything, this would be the time. Rogan says, that's, that's when God's, God has to step in. Again, this just kind of talking. It's not even an insult. Bald head is just an accurate description. I mean, this is not an insult. Murray, yeah, there's so many of the stories that are so strange. He says, most people don't even bother reading reading that, because it's just, it's almost too crazy. Well, we're reading that, all right? We're going to go through that. Um, this is one of those things, you do hear this a lot, and I'm, I'm just using this as an example to say, hey, this is actually the number one most listened to thing. A lot of people heard that argument or heard that frustration. This is a very common argument. She's like, I, and this is just really, this is just a diving board to me to the, a greater conversation. It's I struggle with the God of the Old Testament. And there is one of the, and, and let me just preface it this way. Um, we have to see God, the God is the God of blessing, Absolutely. He makes bad waters good. He blesses a very wicked town, Jericho. He's a God of blessing, but he's also a God of bears or a God of judgment. And here's how I want to put it. I actually was really just because these two stories are fascinating to me. I've never really put them together. Um, Elijah crosses over the Jordan. You see this bad water is healed. You see these bears come out of the forest, attack these kids. The point is there's these two stories. I don't think that they're isolated. I think they're back to back for a reason. One thing I, I wrote down, I almost want to just say it right away, and we'll kind of follow back up with this. Here's the idea. There's a blessing, listen, there's a blessing and joy to those who ask for it, and there's bears and judgment to those who ask for it. This might sound strange, but the idea is, what are you asking for? Some were asking for blessing, and they got it. Some were asking for judgment, and they got it. What do you go to God for? Whether or not you like that, or that frustrates you, Welcome. The Bible should have a little bit of that. Like, this feels weird or off. People went to God for blessing and they got it. 
People went to God to mock and belittle, and they got what they asked for. And you're like, but that doesn't seem just. We'll talk about that. Let's do this. Let's go to the first part. You guys okay? Is everyone okay? Let's do it. Number one, um, there's, this, how are we going to break this down? Barrenness to blessing, bullying to bears. All right. <laughs> and Battle of Galactica, like I said. Uh, barrenness to blessing. Verse 19. Barrenness to blessing. Let's just read the story again, verse 19. I want, I want us to see this first part. It's so important. Barrenness to blessing. Look at verse 19. It says, Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the springs of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from now on. Neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. The first thing Elisha does, crosses over the Jordan. The first miracle is basically there's barrenness. The, the town of Jericho cannot thrive. It's cursed, essentially. And he has to bring blessing to it by throwing salt in the water. But, so let's just kind of break down the story a bit. If you're not familiar with Jericho, I kind of mentioned this last week. You remember Jericho? Joshua enters into the promised land. Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Remember that whole fun song, Bible camp stuff? Um, Joshua in the battle of Jericho goes down. The walls come down. Joshua made a very clear promise over the land and over Jericho. Listen to this. It's Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. Joshua says, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. Joshua makes a curse. If you ever try to rebuild Jericho, you're going to lose your firstborn and your lastborn. You're, you're going to lose your boys. You're going to lose your kids. First Kings 16, King Ahab, the one that Elijah went to. Ahab wants to rebuild the city. He used this guy named Hiel. First Kings 16:34. Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Where did you hear that? Joshua's like, this city should never be rebuilt again. Ahab's like, let's rebuild this city, but I'm not going to do it. You do it. He has this guy do it. He loses both of his boys to this, just like Joshua promised. The point is the city of Jericho was a cursed city. It was cursed land, but the city is rebuilt now at this point. The guy lost his kids to do this. Here's Elisha going into Jericho. He just was filled with this double portion of God's spirit. He goes into the city, and they go, Elisha, man, we need your help, dude. We need your help. Help us out. We know that you got a double portion of God's spirit. We need you. By the way, if you've ever just, I don't know, you're a Christian in your workplace or in life, you know, hopefully there is a sense where people go, hey, I need help. <laughs> There's a side of it that's beautiful. There's a side of it that's like, hey, we need help in the city. Christian, can you help? It's so cool when the city calls upon Christians to help. I think that's a beautiful thing. That has happened. That will happen. I, I hope that continues to happen. I hope that people look at you as a sense of hope in, in darkness. And Elisha walks into the city and they go, hey, man, help us out. You know, notice the phrase, by the way, because this is actually incredibly important in verse 19. We'll put it up. He says, they said, behold, the situation of this city is pleasant. As my Lord sees, you can tell. But the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. It's fascinating. He goes, you can see that Jericho, man, this is beautiful, outwardly beautiful, as, you're, as you would see with your own eye. It's very clear that Jericho, at this point in time being rebuilt, was a beautiful city, but what? But barren, unfruitful. Outwardly incredibly pleasing, inwardly incredibly unfruitful. You have to see that I think so often Satan does a really good job of convincing us of things that look and appear outwardly beautiful, but inwardly are barren and unfruitful. This is something we go, man, that looks awesome to the eye. As my Lord sees, beautiful situation, beautiful city, but no fruit. Maybe you feel that way. Maybe you look at your life and people will say, man, outwardly, you got things going on. Business, successful, you're thriving, you appear to be doing well, but inwardly you feel barren. Inwardly, you feel unfruitful. I want you to know that the Lord does speak into this. This is so important. It's dangerous, obviously, to have an appearance of fruit, but in reality, no fruit. This is one of those things that's heavy. How do we not put on a front where people go, man, that looks so good? This, you look so, like, you put on a front, maybe, or people see something good, but inwardly, you just go, I feel barren. I feel unfruitful. Can I tell you, by the way, we know the end of the story already. I love that God loves to bring fruit to barrenness. That God's like, I know that you outwardly look beautiful and inwardly you feel dead. But can I tell you, God wants to make the inward match the outward. You have to know that, first of all, about God. 
this city, he goes, you see with your own eye. This is not just a point, you guys. This is, this, this is the story of the scripture. Like, the idea is, like, yes, a lot of people, everyone is dead in their trespasses and sins, as the Bible says. In, in a sense, without Jesus, without God, everyone has that barrenness, that unfruitfulness, that death. And the story of scripture is God loves to bring life to death. God's like, is there death? The water's, you, it's undrinkable. The thing about that, what water does for a city, you guys, if you have a bad water supply, there's no, the city cannot thrive. And God's like, let's get to the water. Let's get to the source. Let's get to the barrenness. Let's get to the unfruitfulness. Isn't that beautiful that your God goes, I actually want there to be fruit. This, this city was cursed. Did we get that? This was a cursed city. And maybe you feel that way of just like, oh, but God, like the things I've done, that I, that I shouldn't even, this shouldn't even exist. And yet God wants to bring life to it. That's mind-blowing to me when you think about this. First of all, this just begins with just intense grace. And, and I love this. I love that they see Elisha and they seek him out. They're like, Elisha, man, this is a beautiful city, but we need your help. Listen, they basically made the most of that opportunity. And I want to, like, in a sense, congratulate the people of Jericho. Like, good job. You saw this guy passing through and you're like, help us. We need your help. It says in Isaiah 55, 6, a verse you know. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. There's a beautiful sense of, listen, if you have breath in your lungs right now, seek the Lord while he may be found. You feel barren, you feel unfruitful, you have breath in your lungs, right now call upon the Lord. Can I tell you, God wants to bring life to your death. God wants to bring fruit to barrenness. It's really interesting the words that are being used. It's like, maybe you read the word miscarriage or barren. It's a communicating, there's absolutely no life here. People who drink the water, it probably produced death in them. And God's like, I want to, I want to produce life now. Let's get to the source of it. This is the God we worship. The God we worship is, let me take a city that's cursed and should never have been rebuilt to begin with, and let me bless it. That's mind-blowing to me. This city should not be in existence. This guy who built it had to lay down two of his kids to build it. But they go to God and say, God, will you bless this curse? And God's like, yeah, I'll bless this curse. Is that not the Bible? Guys, the Bible's God's like, let me bless this curse. It says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. I just want to kind of go straight for it. This city was under a curse, and God brought blessing. This verse in Galatians 3, it's obviously, it's a different context. The context is, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And then here's the idea. That's what it says in Leviticus, right? The Old Testament's really clear. No one, if anyone hangs on a tree, that person's cursed. That was just a law. You're cursed if you hung on a tree. And it says, Christ became a curse for us that he might redeem us. Jesus embraced the curse to pull us out of that curse. I'll hang on the tree. I'll be cursed so you could be set free. The idea is there is a curse under the law. And the idea is that Jesus came and embraced and took on that curse so you and I don't have to be under that. Something that we could never keep, something we could never do. I love Paul. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse. Jesus took on the curse to bring us life. I have, like, before we just do anything or get into anything, you have to see this. Here's a cursed city that should not exist. It, is, it should not be rebuilt. And they're like, please bless us. And God's like, yeah, I love to restore and redeem. I love to take things that are cursed and I love to make it new and bless it. Because that is the story of the gospel. And I, don't, I cannot move on from that just very easily. So, but here's the idea. It says the water is bad, or in Hebrew, it's raw, it's evil. It's very interesting, the language that's being used. It's just saying like, ah, the source of the water going to the city is just evil, man. It's bringing death wherever it goes. Elisha, outwardly, you can see it. It's beautiful. The situation, as you see with your own eyes, it's beautiful. But there's just death everywhere it goes. It does remind me of Jesus in that fig tree. Remember the fig tree? He sees a, a fig tree with all these leaves, and he goes to eat from its fruit, but there's no fruit. And he curses the fig tree. They go back to it, and the fig tree's dead. He's like, ah, you had an appearance of life, but there was no life. It was just death. There was appearance of life, but inwardly there was death. Obviously, you guys, um, in Hebrews 4.13, there's a beautiful verse that basically says, everything is naked and exposed to the eyes of the Lord. Obviously, the Lord sees through me, sees through you. How incredibly humbling is that? It's so humbling, though. The Lord's like, I see through you, and I see, listen, I see every part of you. And can I say this? Not because God then casts us off and goes, I see every part of you, therefore I cast you off. He's like, no, I see every part of you. Therefore, I want to bring, de- I want to bring life to your death. It appears to be dead inwardly. It is dead inwardly. And yet he, he blesses it. And I just want to say this. You need to know this God, the God who brings life to death. You need to know this God who says you're not under this curse of sin, hell, and death anymore. I've come to embrace that so you can experience life and life more abundantly. That's the God we worship. So Elijah's first miracle, essentially, after crossing the Jordan is there's death in the city through this water source. There's barrenness, miscarriage, there's death. Let me bring life to it. 
fascinating. Obviously, it's weird. This is like, there's some, so much symbolism in this, but he's like, bring me a new bowl, put salt in it. Obviously, this is not like something that would work naturally, the man-made thing. Like, let's get a bowl, let's put some salt in it, let's throw it in the source of the water. That's not something that would normally work. We like know that. I, I want to almost like hold my comments on this new bowl because in 2 Kings 4, one, and I'm serious, one of my favorite stories in 2 Kings 4, where he's like, we need some new vessels. And this is this, the story of Elisha. We need some new bowls. Give me some new bowls. Let's put some water in it or put some salt in it and throw it in the water. So there's this new bowl, there's some salt, it's thrown into the water. You guys know this, but salt so often throughout the Bible, it, there's just, it's a symbol, it's a picture, it's emblematic. Here's the idea of salt. Salt does many things, you know, but first of all, salt purifies. There's a beautiful side of salt that just salt be, just purifies. Whether that's physically on a womb, like a salt can bring healing, salt can purify you know, Jesus said it so clearly. I think you know where I'm going with this, but Jesus said this in Matthew 5, 13. Jesus says, you, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount goes, hey, uh, believers, Christians, you are the salt of the earth. Salt does a lot of good. Salt can really restore, salt can purify Salt can enhance. There's so many things that salt can do. He goes, that's your job. You're the salt of the earth. We're in a sense to bring purity, health, healing to a culture. This salt, it doesn't make sense, obviously. Salt really wouldn't make water. If you just drink salty water, like this doesn't really make sense. But supernaturally, God's like, no, no, I, I want to heal and restore through the salt. Listen, Christians, you are the salt of the earth. God's like, I want to heal the land. I want to heal people. You're like, that's your job. If you ever had salt like piled up, salt piled up is just gross, Right? Salt needs to be spread out. Like salt is so much better when it's like, if you just get one bite of salt in your meal, and you're like, mm, it's a great bite of salt. It's awful, right? It's like Christians, it's great. We're great together, but sometimes we're terrible. We need to be spread out. <laughs> like sometimes it's like Christians need to be spread out. Go, go, spread out. It's all over the food, all over the world. Like sometimes Christians need to be spread out. We come together, yes, it's great, but we also need to be spread out. And salt, you are the salt of the earth. Now, this is a weird thing. How if salt loses saltiness, he goes, it's no good. Just throw it out. By the way, if, like, there's people who write about this. I, I wanted to explore this this week. I'm like, what is this phrase? Like, if it's no good, if like, does salt lose its saltiness? And there's a lot of, you know, scientists are like, no, it does not. So what is this? They basically describe a couple of ways. Salt can lose its saltiness in a couple of ways. One primary way is just you dilute it with water. The idea is um, it loses its saltiness if you just dilute it. It's being mixed with something else. How do we lose our saltiness? You dilute it by being mixed with something else. There's the water of this world, and then there's the water of Jesus who says, I'm the water of life. I'm the water of life. And he goes, I've, I've, I've called you to go, and to go to the world, that's to, their water just brings death. I'm going to pour salt in the water, and it's going to bring life again. Like, we need to go out. Salt purifies. Salt preserves, obviously. You know the idea of how salt was you know, packed with meats, and it was used to preserve meat, but salt preserves it's like, how do we bring Christ's culture to earth as it is in heaven? How to bring God's kingdom to earth? God, I want to preserve your work, your ministry, what you're doing. We want to preserve what you're doing. Bring it here on earth as it is in heaven. Salt preserve. Salt enhances. Obviously, I love that. You love that probably. Salt, you add salt to anything that enhances flavor. And it's in Christians who should enhance that, like people's experience. See, when Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, the reason why I'm bringing this up, there's actually really no clear definition that, that I've like, what does he mean by that? There's so much speculation, to be honest, around what does it mean to be salt of the earth? The idea was, though, is salt was incredibly valuable, incredibly valuable. And he's like, do you not understand that you are incredibly valuable and you can heal and purify and preserve and you can do a lot of good? That's why Jesus said it very similarly in Mark 9:50. Jesus says, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I love that. Just have salt in yourselves. Like, you need this just as much as the world needs this. I need this. But we try to give the world something that we don't have. That's not going to work. You need to give them, have salt in yourselves. In a sense of like, have you, first of all, tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Have you experienced the goodness and grace of Jesus? Have you experienced being under the curse of sin and feeling that weight and now been relieved from that curse because of the cross of Jesus? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced the cleansing, peeling salt in your life? Has God brought you out of darkness into his marvelous light? Have you experienced, have salt in yourselves? And you are a salt of the world. You're the salt of the earth. I love that because we can never give something to someone that we don't personally possess. And you need to experience the healing salt-like work of Jesus in your life.
Yes? And then we can bring it to the world. Have salt in yourselves, he said. You need to first have it in you in this way. So he went, and I love this, verse 21, the New King James puts it this way. It says, then he went out to the source of the water and cast in the salt there and said, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water from it. From it. There shall be no more death or bareness. He applied the salt to the source of the problem. Again, I, I, this is just simple. What is the source of the evil? Where is the problem at? Where does God, like, I want to bring healing and restoration to that. Where is like sin just like kind of bubbling up over in your life and God's like, there's a wicked stream flowing through your life, a bad, a raw, an evil stream kind of flowing through your life, through your life and we need to go to the source of it. And I want to apply God's grace and mercy that God's, you know, the idea is this, God wants to go to the deep, dark places of your heart that you don't want to reveal to him. He wants to go to the source and bring salt and bring healing and bring life. God's like, let's go to the source. So Elisha, through this analogy of salt, goes to the source and it brings healing. And before we move on, I really do believe we have to know, first and foremost, we serve a God who wants to bring life to death and healing to bitter, dark, evil waters. And he wants to be that source. Have salt in yourselves. He wants to bring healing. Are you following me on that? This is the heart of God, first and foremost. It's funny, if you go to uh, Israel today or to Jericho, it's probably a tourist trap, I'll be honest, but I think it's kind of cool. You can see this picture here. Uh, you can see it says Jericho, the oldest city on earth, and has like the springs, Elisha's springs, where he took these you know, evil, bad, bitter waters and he brought healing to them. So I probably wouldn't drink it right now. I don't know, maybe, maybe. But uh, I love it. It's still there. And the idea is like, it's still there. As it says in this verse, in verse 22, it's still there to this day. What a beautiful thought to think that the work of God is faithful to complete. Like whatever God has started, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus. Isn't that so good? It's not like Jesus just tried to deal with you years ago. That he still wants to deal, work, heal, restore. Hey, if you feel like, man, but Josiah, I once believed or I once did these things and now here I am years later and I've kind of strayed. Um, do you know that the salt wants to continue to heal, continue to restore, that God began a good work in you? He wants to be faithful. He will be faithful to complete until the day of Jesus. That God's not like, oh man, I mean, it's bad. Like, you know, like the, the salt still does heal and still does restore. And I love how it says, it's to this day. To this day, the water's drinkable. So here's Jericho, evil, cursed city that is now blessed and restored. I'm like, thank you. That's awesome. Thank you, Elisha. He's got you, man. Now he goes to Bethel. Completely different approach. He's not approached by people saying we want blessing. He's approached by people who are mocking. So let's just read the story again. You guys ready? Part two, verse 22. Uh, we're going to look at bullying to bears, verse 23. It says, and he went up from there to Bethel. And while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him saying, go up, bald head, go up, bald head. And he turned around and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. That's where Elijah did his great work. And from there, he went to Samaria. All right, you're like, what is this? This is just such a weird story. It goes from blessing, like this bitter bad waters is now blessed to bears and judgment. Like what is going on? Um, okay, you probably struggle with the phrases that I struggled with. These small boys. Maybe you're like, okay, this is, this is not okay. Maybe you read that too. I read that. I'm like, oh, why did, man, it feels so intense. We'll just put this up here. It says the small boys, it's this word na'ar. Uh, it's described as, Joseph was described as this. When Joseph had his dreams, Isaac, when he was offered on Mount Carmel and he was not a small boy. Saul was described as this. Saul was a man. He's literally described the same way. He was tall, but low. He's na'ar. He's low in status. Uh, it's used to describe the marital age. Rebecca was called this word na'ar. The idea is like she was ready to be married and she was called this Hebrew word. The idea was this word is used in so many different contexts. It's applied to about at least a 28-year-old, 30-year-old, um, all the way to like a 17-year-old teenager. It might be saying small, even in the sense of like more of their, uh, like Saul, uh, small in their heart, small in their stature. Yes, you might be physically tall, but you're small. You're not R. It can be applied to that. Uh, but I want you to think about this is a word that's actually applied to people who are of the age to get married. So the idea is they're probably not small. Think of frat boys. All right, let's just let's start there. They're small boys. Okay, we got to think about it like that. Um, these frat boys. Now, here's the thing. This actually is something you really consider. I don't, I've never had an experience like this, but uh, if you're passing through a city, obviously this is usually when you get robbed. You're passing from one city to the next. Um, there's not a lot of people around. This is the prime time to get robbed, to be beaten, to be killed when you're going from one city to the next. It's just a dangerous area. It's no man's land. It's like the Wild West. It's where gnarly things can happen. So he's passing from one city into another city. 42 frat boys surround him. Um, that's probably more of a fair thing. Now, think about it like that way. 42. Think about being overwhelmed by 42 guys, okay? 
It's not so much of the being called a bald head, like, okay, you called me bald head, that's it. It's not so much that, it's the intensity of being surrounded by 42 guys who have ill intent. Bethel being a prime place of modern day uh, idolatry. I mean, Bethel was where a lot of pagan gods were worshipped at that time. Yes, this is where God met with Abraham and Jacob. And yes, Bethel's roots were beautiful. But Bethel in his day, in Ahab's day, was a very, very wicked city where babies were murdered alive, a disgusting and terrible and evil things happened. So being surrounded by 42 people alone, just imagine you alone with 42 people surrounding you. There's obviously a lot of fear associated with that. There's a lot of intensity associated with that. There's probably ill intent associated with that, not just calling him a name. Um, so for all, the, for all my, you know, lack of follicular hair people out there, this is not a good verse to use to like justify. It's not just about the baldness. It's so much more obviously going on than that. But here's the idea. When he say go up, like go up bald head, go up bald head. What, what does he mean by that? Who just went up? Who just went up? Elijah. Elijah, his disciple, went up to heaven. This go up, bald head, go up, bald head. Hey, the guy who just left you, that prophet, go up like him. You're so great. Mocking Elijah, mocking the work of God, mocking the work of Elijah, mocking the work of Elisha. Hey, go up like him. It obviously just kind of reminds you of, of Jesus being, when he's being mocked on the cross. If you're so great, come down from there. Come down to Jesus. Go up to him. Jesus, come down. Elisha, go up. You're so great. You're some prophet like Elijah, your master. Go up. He's like, yeah, you want to know that I'm pretty intense like my uh, Elijah? <laughs> he calls some she-bears. Uh, this idea, too, I just want you to understand the idea of they're mocking God, they're mocking his faith, they're mocking everything. He, it's intimidating, 42, alone, traveling from city to city. Uh, probably going to mean imminent death for him at that point in time. Calls on these she-bears. I don't know why she-bears. Maybe it's like Mama Bear. I don't know. It's just scary. Mama Bear is like, oh, that's my cub. I got it. I don't know. But whatever. Mama Bears come, maul him. This word tor maul, but I'm only bringing this up because of people who ask these questions, so bear with me. The word tor, or maybe your version says mauled, is this word, uh, I can't even pronounce it wrong, it's like baka. Try to look at this. So you can look it up yourself. It just means to cleave, break open, or through. Because um, like, they, were, they were tore up. Did they die? Yeah, probably. That's my thought. Um, <laughs> they, they were tore open and through. I, maybe it was just bad claw scratch per child. I don't know. Um, but pro probably not good. I, I'm going to imagine it's the worst case scenario. And so the reason why I'm bringing all this up is like, whoa, 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 whoa. The overall intensity is like, hey, doesn't this seem a little intense that God would just maul these small children for making fun of someone? Okay, they're probably 17 to 28 at the age of being married, 42 on one of God's prophets, mocking his, him, what just happened with his master, with Elijah going to heaven. It's probably a very intense moment. Um, you still go, okay, even with all that context, it's still very difficult for me to understand this. I want to actually point this out because this is how God works. By the way, being in Bethel, and think about this. Remember the northern kingdom, Israel, southern kingdom, Judah, all people of God, essentially, all covenant, supposed to be covenantal people of God, followers of Yahweh, supposed to be that, but now have gone into pagan practices and pagan ideology. They would know, and they should have known, or, you know, this would be their history, uh, the Torah. Here's what God says specifically in Leviticus 26, and I want you to see this because this to me is a sign of God's grace. In Leviticus 26, God says this, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you or your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. God, honestly, in his grace says, if you keep on mocking, walking away, if you keep on being walking contrary to me, there is a promise, God says, there will be judgment specifically through wild beasts. This seems to be a fulfillment of Leviticus 26. If you walk contrary to me, there's always going to be judgment to that, by the way. If you walk, a, you, you have that right. Everyone has the right to walk contrary to God's word. You do have that right. But there's always judgment, essentially. And specifically with them, the covenantal people of God in the Old Testament, specifically there's these wild beasts that God's like, hey, know this. You might read that and go, I don't like that. Let me say this. I view this as a sign of God's grace. God's grace to give us his word to say, you don't have to go in that direction. But if you do, know that there will be punishment for that. God has given us his word to this very day. You don't have to follow it. But if you do, there's always going to be some sort of, sin is always judged. We need to understand, listen, this is what's beautiful about the cross. Sin is always judged. Either you pay for your sin, or by faith through grace, you believe that your sin was paid for on Jesus on the cross. Sin will always be judged. God is good and God is just. Listen, if God cannot be just and just wink at sin, God must punish sin. 
and either your sin has been placed on Jesus and by your stripes you are healed, you are forgiven, or your sin is placed on you. God warned them, if you go contrary to my word, there will be wild beasts who will come. This is, in a sense, a fulfillment of that. God's saying, you don't have to. Let me give you my word. I'm try- God doesn't give us his word to prevent us from joy, prevent us from life. He's like, I give you my word so that you can have life and life more abundantly. I don't want this to happen to you any more than you do. I give you my word so that you can live. Therefore, turn and live. You see more of that like, warning through the word. We see that in Leviticus 26. Let me put it through this way. 2 Chronicles 36. Listen to how it dis- this is. 2 Chronicles 36 kind of summarizes Judah and, and uh, Israel and its time with the prophets. This is fascinating. Second uh, Chronicles 36, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, that's Elisha, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept what? Everyone say the word. They kept what? Mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. God sends us messengers. God sends us his words through what heart? Through what characteristic? His compassion. God's like, I'm giving you my word through compassion. I'm, I'm making it difficult for you. If you've ever read the book of Ezekiel, and that's when the nation of, of Judah, but Israel is being taken captive into uh, Babylon, and there's a prophet basically speaking to them, prophesying over them, different things at different points in times. In Ezekiel, what I love is a couple of, in Ezekiel 18, 26, you see the heart of God so clear. God's like, you're going to be taken as slaves for 70 years. But you're going to be taken as slaves. But know this, know that I love you. I have compassion on you. You don't have to always go in judgment. God said over and over again, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, what? Turn and live. God's, this is the heart of God. God's like, I take no pleasure in this. This is, we have to hear this. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He begs us, therefore, turn and live. Paul said it this way in in Corinthians. He goes, as if God were pleading through me on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Do you have in your mind an image of God pleading? Please don't go in this direction. Be reconciled to me. Turn and live. We serve a God who does not take joy in the death of the wicked. We serve a God who says, I don't want this to be your outcome. But sin is, will always be judged. You want me to be a loving, good, and gracious God, but don't you also want God to be holy and just? How can both exist? Only through the cross of Jesus. The cross is the only place where God can be loving, gracious, merciful, and just, and good, and righteous. The cross is where God can be both. Sometimes we only want one or the other. If you've ever been wronged, you want justice. If you've ever wronged someone, you want mercy and grace. And the point is, we, we, I've been on both sides. I've hurt, I've wronged, I've done those things. I want mercy and grace. God, um, we have bitter waters, bad waters. They're evil. Can you, can you bless it? God's like, yeah, I'd love to bless it. Then you have people go mocking, belittling, scoffing. Prophets of God who are set forth the word to help them, to restore them. And they want to what? They want to intimidate him, maybe potentially murder him. And there's judgment. The, the point you have to see is like, okay, what are you coming to God with right now? Are you coming mocking, belittling, scoffing? Are you coming to God? You know what, God? I feel like I am under this curse. Actually, would you bring healing, joy, restoration? I need that. What do you come to God with? I'd say this. Come to God like the, the people of Jericho. Hey, I'm under this curse. You can see things look good, maybe outwardly, but inside there's death. Can you please bring life? God's like, I got you. I love to bring life. Let's throw some salt in it. <laughs> it's going to sting. It's going to hurt. But it's going to bring healing. There's something so beautiful about that. Then there's people who it's like mock and belittle and scoff. God sends forth his word. He sends forth his prophets and prophets. And then, say, then he sends his son and we still kill his son. God's like, I've been so good, so great, time and time again. And yet, if that's what you want, that's what you'll get as well. You're acting and behaving in a way you want judgment. That's what you get. But know this. First and foremost, he's like, I want to bring healing to those dead waters. I want to bring life to that. We serve a God who takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Therefore, turn and live, he says. As if God were pleading through us on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. I need everyone in this room to get a vision of God pleading to be reconciled to him. God takes joy in no one being separated from him. God does not take joy in anyone ever being eternally separated in hell from him. God takes no joy in that. Hell, we're told, was created for Satan and his angels. I understand that these, this story in 2 Kings 2, it, it really what it does is probably open up a heart wound in you for bigger issues of going, how could a loving God do this and send she bears? But really what you're saying is, how could a loving God send someone to hell? How could a loving God ever send judgment? 
And we have to see this way. We have to see that there's a God in heaven who says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In fact, I'm going to make it incredibly difficult for you to face judgment. Do you know how difficult I'm going to make it? Listen, God makes it very difficult for you to face judgment. Here's how. He's basically saying, it's so difficult to face sin, hell, death, judgment. It's very difficult. How? It's over my son's dead body. You'll, you'll face that. To face sin, hell, death, judgment, you have to step over the dead body of Jesus and say, I don't want that. It's, like, it's truly God saying, over my dead body, you'll go to hell. You have to see that that's the heart of God. For all the parents, you get that? When your kid goes off maybe and you're like, over my dead body, you're going to go to that party. <laughs> and you're kind of like, no, over, no, no. Think about this. God's like, no, over my dead body, you'll ever be separated from hell, from me. Over my dead body. This, I'm going to make it so difficult for you. You'll literally have to step over the dead, innocent body of Jesus to go there. Meaning God's like, I'm going to take the sin, wrath, and judgment. I am. I'm innocent. I'm loving. I don't deserve any of this. I created you. I love you. I gave you everything you need for life and life more abundantly. And you spat in my face. And guess what? I'll come down and walk among you, live with you, and you'll crucify and kill me. And if you end up separated from me, you literally had to step over the dead body of Jesus to go there. The point of me saying all of that is we serve a good God who loves to bless and undo those curses. We serve a God who loves to bring life to death. But then you also have the opportunity to say, no, 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 I don't want the messengers of God. I don't want the prophets of God. I don't want the son of God. I don't want any of that. Okay, then that's what you'll get. But God makes it difficult. He says, therefore, turn and live. These stories, I think, open up a, a bigger heart, like wound to just greater issues in scriptures. And I'd say, just take your time before you dismiss it. Because what God is trying to show you is I'm a God who loves to bless the curses, but I'm a God who also says, if you want to live under the curse, there, you'll face the judgment. If you want to get out of it, I'm going to get you out of it. Again, I, I wrote it this way. There's blessing and joy to those who ask for it. There's bears and judgment to those who ask for it. What are you going to God with? So here's, I just want to share with you a couple thoughts, by the way, because hear me out. Um, if, there's a, if you ever come to scriptures like this and you're like, I don't like this, Josiah, I'm frustrated by this. I just want to give you some like things I do. Here's just some like kind of abstract thoughts I wrote down. I hope it's helpful a little bit. Maybe one or two will be. Um, here's the thing. Things to consider when faced with a troubling passage of scripture. First of all, you need to do a thorough examination of the passage in parallel passages. Just always do that. Before you read it and dismiss it, too many people read the scriptures and dismiss it. Before you do that, do just a thorough examination of that or if there's similar passages. Next thing is this. Uh, you need to pray over the passage and just talk it over with the Lord. Can I tell you, I think a lot of your questions that you ask people or Christians would probably be answered if you go, hey, Lord, I'm really struggling with these she-bears uh, mauling these 42 kids. Can we talk about this? Do that. I'm so serious. Do that. I feel like in, in your heart and in, your, in that secret place with the Lord, the Lord's like, yeah, do you think I want that? Do you think I, that's my will? No, I take no pleasure. Turn and live. Talk it over with the Lord. I think you'll actually be pleasantly surprised as you do that. Uh, next thought. Read reliable commentaries to get further insight. It's okay. Like, it's okay. God, you know, what do other people say about this? I want to, in a multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. Let's, maybe you need to read. Maybe you come to a passage, like, I'm struggling with this passage. Read some reliable commentators. I don't mind giving you recommendations for that. Next thought is this. Um, keep this in mind. God is always gracious to warn of coming judgment and gives time to repent. He is way more gracious to the sinner than we realize. God in Leviticus goes, hey, 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 know that if you continue to walk contrary to me, this is going to happen. God warns. God gives time. God does not leave you in the dark. God is way more gracious to the sinner, which is me, than you realize. God is way more gracious to us. He wants to do the, the first part, the salt part. God is way more gracious. Keep in mind, everyone is guilty. No one is innocent. Like, they're innocent. In reality, no one's innocent. These kids, they're definitely not innocent. No one is. Uh, next thought. God wouldn't be good or just if he never judged or punished sin. He wouldn't. He wouldn't be a good God if he never punished sin. Next thought. There are many who want to make God look evil in order to justify their rejection of him, his word, or even his existence. There are going to be many people who go, ah, the Dawkins of this world, who go, look at this, this uh, misogynistic, racist, pedophilistic, like he'll make up all these words just to make you feel like, oh, make you feel intense around it. In reality, they have to paint it in this way so they don't have to take an inward look at themselves. They want to have to justify their actions. I'll say this. Um, when a passage of scripture seems to be unclear, you have to rest in the character and nature of God. You have to. When you come to a passage of scripture, you go, this is rough. You have to rest. Look at Jesus as a beautiful reflection, obviously, of the attributes of God made known, made visible. 
And look, you see Jesus, incredible. he cares about the unjust things happening in the temple and overturns the table. And it's a calculated thing he does because he goes to the temple the day before. He's very, Jesus is righteous and holy and just, but he's very loving and compassionate and gracious and merciful. And my point is, sometimes you need to slow down and go, oh, hold on. The, pro- the problem probably isn't God, it's probably me. Um, if the Bible ever frustrates you, the Bible's probably doing its job. Okay. If it ever gets under your skin, maybe it needs to. If you ever feel like, I don't like this, join the club. <laughs> and, and realize that there should be a little bit of shock and awe sometimes to scriptures because that's what God's like. If this always just went with your thoughts and your way of thinking and never challenged you, I don't think, listen, there's no way the infinite, eternal God is always going to agree with Josiah Graves. No way he's always going to agree with you. And that should actually bring comfort knowing that God will say things that you go, oof, I don't like that. God's like, yes. Uh, my ways are totally different than your ways. And that's actually a good thing. Keep that in mind. I want to I say, end with this, because this is so important to me. You have to see the heart of God is in the first story primarily. Oh, you want blessing for this curse? Let's go. Oh, you just want to continue in the curse? Let's go. And I, I love this, because here's the thing. The cross of Jesus is the only thing that satisfies both. I love what Timothy Stoner says. Let's just listen to this quote. I'll end with this. He says, the love, listen, the love that won on the cross and wins the world is a love that is driven, determined, and defined by holiness. It is a love that flows out of the heart of a God who is transcendent, majestic, infinite in righteousness, who loves justice as much as he does mercy, who hates wickedness as much as he does love God goodness, who blazes with a fiery, passionate love for himself above all things. He is creator, sustainer, beginning and end. He is robed in a splendor and eternal purity that is blinding. He rules, he reigns, he rages and roars, then bends down to whisper love songs to his his creatures. You have to see these both. You have to see the majestic, holiness, transcendent God, and you have to see that loving, good, merciful God who comes and walks among us and says, you know what? The the punishment and sin you deserve, I'm going to take. And on the cross, you could say Jesus essentially took on and became all those things that Richard Dawkins accuses God of. He actually becomes all those things. Why? Because he took on all of our sin and all of our filth and all of our flesh. He took all of that because he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He's like, I'll take all of that. Fine. Give me all those labels because those labels deserve to be on me and you. I'll take all of them. So I'll give you my label. Righteous, forgiven, cleansed, healed, restored. What can wash away your sins, my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. He's a God who wants to restore and redeem. If there's still breath in your lungs, call upon him. He will save you. He will restore you. He loves to do it. Just ask. He loves to do it. He doesn't want to be the God of the bears. He wants to be the God of blessing. But he is both. And if there's breath in your lungs, you can call upon Jesus. Amen? Here's what I want to do. Why don't we just pray? Why don't we just be slow, be quiet? I'm going to give you some time just to respond to this God. So here's what I'm asking. Wouldn't you right now, I'm not going to even pray. Bow your head. Close your eyes. Talk to this God who is both good and blesses and is also holy. Just talk to this God. What do you want to confess to him? What do you want to thank him for? Just bow your head, close your eyes, just talk to your God right now. Take a minute.